listening to the Uloft Podcast, presented by United IUP, a community of college students and young adults in Indiana, Pennsylvania, who are dedicated to unite with each other and Christ to change the world around us. We hope that this podcast raises questions and answers others, while ultimately starting a conversation to discover unifying biblical truth in this chaotic world. Michael, do you even know what we're going to do today? I don't know what we're going to do at all. Not even in the slightest. Uh, Aren't you? The, I do. So I you're do supposed know, to be running this podcast. Yeah. I do know this is the Uloft podcast. So that's a good start. You are listening to the Uloft podcast. And I'm sitting here with Kendall. And it's just the two of us. And we're hey, going hey. to talk about addiction. And I think maybe a good place for us to start is this idea that we have a misunderstanding of addiction. What exactly do you mean by that? So I'm familiar also with the Rat Park experiment and the idea that so much of whether or not someone descends into the vicious cycle of addiction depends on external circumstances. So I think sometimes we think about addiction like you take a substance, that substance messes up your brain in such a way that you are stuck in a cycle independent of everything else. And Rat Park seems to suggest that that's not the case. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, if you were at Unite on Tuesday, uh, um, this last Tuesday, uh, I'm trying to think of the date just in case you're listening to this later on, uh, March 22nd. If you were at uh, Uloft or at Unite on uh, March 22nd, um, we talked about we've got issues and we talked about addiction. And a lot of my talk actually came from a TED Talk uh of um, Johan Hari is his last name, I believe, right? Johan Hari. And um, in his discussion, he uh, brought up a experiment by Professor Bruce Alexander in the 1970s called the Rat Park Experiment. And what this particular experiment was is it kind of turned um, all other addiction, drug addiction experiments on its head because originally um, the way that they would uh, gather their theories about drug addiction was they would put rats in a cage with nothing except for water and a bottle of water that was laced with heroin or with cocaine. And so obviously when the rat had nothing else to choose, it was going to go to the uh, cocaine or the heroin. And 90% of rats uh, in that in that state overdosed and quickly killed themselves. Um, so uh, Professor Alexander thought, well, what if we put something else in this cage? And that's when he discovered or built Rat Park. And Rat Park, essentially, um, the rat had all his basic needs um, and even more, a little bit more that were met. He had food, he had water, he had friends. Uh, he had, uh, they, it says that they had uh, little rubber balls to play with, um, had probably a wheel to run on, um, plenty of different uh, things to do for this rat. But they also still had the heroin uh, in the corner. Now, um, they said that no rats, zero rats in this experiment, um, overdosed, not one. And very rarely did they ever actually go back to, uh, this bottle. So they never actually became addicted. And so what Bruce Alexander found was essentially that addiction is more about your cage than it is the substance that you are addicted to. Um, and it really turned, you know, what we think about addiction on its head, or really it should have. I mean, this is in the 1970s and uh, most people still think of addiction in the wrong sense. And that's why we talked about the fact that we have a misunderstanding that it's like, 
oh, these chemical hooks that are in you because of a substance or because of endorphins or because of this relief that you get. And so there's this chemical release in your brain, which is all true. Um, but those aren't the reasons why you become addicted. Uh, that's kind of the, um, effect, but that's not the cause, right? Like, um, the cause is really your cage and your outside circumstances and what you live in. Um, and so for you, uh, it could be trauma. It could be past trauma. It could be, um, something that you just don't want to deal with a conflict that you just don't want to deal with. So every time it comes up, you want to numb out. Um, it can be, uh, any kind of stress, uh, that causes, that causes this particular thing. But really it's usually whenever we don't have some sort of need met, some sort of felt need met where we've lost connection with something in our life, um, whether that be a relationship, whether that be an actual need in our life. And, and that's why we have a misunderstanding of addiction. Yeah, and the implications for this are really <laughs> kind of amazing because essentially what that means is that if you want to preserve yourself against addiction, you can do real work by trying to structure your external circumstances in such a way that you are, you don't have those stressors that are pushing you towards it. And so here's an example. There's, there's also an implication on the other side of this. So you can think of it like you have the negative stressors that could push you towards addiction or push you towards using substances that create addiction or that, that are addictive. But then you also have the positive element of it. And like, if you surround yourself with people like take alcoholism, for example, if you struggle with alcoholism and then you hang out with your friends who are also alcoholic, just their presence is going to set off the cycle. It's going to, so there could be no alcohol present, but just being with them. Like, I think this is why in some sense they say that mi misery loves company. Um, you, you create a feedback loop with the people who are around you. So if you surround yourself with people who are also addicted and you're addicted, and then you kind of validate each other and affirm each other that increases the cycle or it makes the cycle worse. And on the negative side of it, if you are able to take care of things like your physical health or like, say you, you work at a job that, that, you, that you hate and it's causing you to become resentful and bitter and you're not being treated properly or whatever it is, like you can change those things without having to address physical neurological addiction. And what's even more dangerous in a sense is that those things can exist even before addiction exists. So a lot of times I think we see people who become addicted to a substance and then the addiction long outlasts the reason they got addicted to begin with. So like they, you know, they might start out when they're 15 because of something that happened or some, some stressor that was present in their life. And then 20 years down the road, they don't even remember why they got addicted to begin with. And so I think that putting all of the emphasis on the drug or on the coping mechanism uh, and sort of making that the source of the addiction is where we run into problems, at least when it comes to the findings that we have from Rat Park. Yeah. And you actually brought up a really good point. And I never got to mention this in, um, in the talk on Tuesday, but here's the crazy thing, right? So why, why do, and this is a rhetorical question to you because I'm going to answer it, but, uh, why, why do so many young people become quickly, uh, alcoholics, um, sex addicts, they might not realize they're sex addicts, but they are, um, and drug addicts. Like why do they so quick? Why does that stuff take place in really a lot of times 
um, in adolescence, so in your teenage years, why does that stuff happen? What is the disconnection, right? Like, so I said that addiction starts um, with some kind of loss of connection. And where I think it starts, the reason why I think so many of um, millennials, Gen Z, or really whatever teenage generation it is right now, teenage to, to, uh, to 20s, um, the reason why so many addictions start off in that 15 to 25 range and uh, later on down the road, you don't even know why you had it is because there's a disconnect between you and the world around you because you want to fit in so much with friends, with peers, um, and that's the disconnection. There's a disconnection of real community, which is what we talked about on Tuesday, right? Like there is this, we have this thought a lot of times of, well, if I don't do this, I'm on the outside. And I don't want to be on the outside. And that's what peer pressure is. I mean, that's what we call it, right? But it is so much deeper than that because it's really a, a feeling and a wanting to belong, which we all have. And we all have that need. It's a very real need of a feeling of wanting to belong um, and needing to belong. And so I think that there is a, a severance between what real community is and what we perceive community to be. And that is why alcoholism, drug addiction, sex addiction starts at a very, can start at a very young age, especially with alcohol, um, starts at a young age because you're doing it because everybody else is doing it. You're going to fit in. And, and really that's the disconnection. So that might not even be like a traumatic thing, but it's almost like a fear of tra trauma, a fear of, well, what if I don't have any friends? What if nobody likes me? Well, what if uh, I don't get invited to parties anymore because I don't drink? Or what if this and what if that? And so there's this disconnect essentially between what real community should look like, what real friends should look like, or what real people in our lives lifting us up should look like. And so, uh, you know, we, we want to fit in and we do that thing. Um, and that's why we get addicted. We don't realize we're addicted 20 years down the road. 40 years old, you know, you got a wife and kids and you're like, man, why am I an alcoholic? Well, because it started in in uh, your teens or your early 20s because there was a disconnect between you and who you really were and trying to fit in. Yeah, and these, um, <coughs> this fear of a loss of connection or of not being connected to anyone and that being the driving force behind peer pressure, that's, it's super effective for young people because there are ready communities surrounding addictive substances like that's what a crowded bar is it's a community that's being built around alcohol um, and it just is the case that in the bar culture people don't they don't want to go to a dead bar they want to go to the one that's hopping why well they both have alcohol so it's not about the alcohol it's about the community or at least what they think the community is and and we say think it we say think the community or perceive the community because there's a difference between that kind of a community that's set up around an addictive substance as opposed to what we would call an authentic or a genuine community. And one of the, I think the major differences is self-sacrifice and kind of uh, using your gifts, using your abilities to, for, for the well-being of other people is sort of a super important ingredient to what we would call an authentic Christian community. So if it's the case that connection is one of the great preservatives against addiction and maybe one of the great antidotes against addiction. How should young people go about identifying the differences between communities that are missing uh, the self-sacrifice or missing the, uh, like, what would you say is an, is an authentic community and how could uh, people get hooked up with something like that so that they wouldn't have to 
fall into the paths of least resistance of being part of bar culture or party culture or whatever it is that's surrounded around the addictive substance. Yeah. So, um, I I like the fact that you bring up self-sacrifice because really I'm about to list a bunch of things that uh, authentic community should have. And really the umbrella or even the foundation, I would say both the foundation and the umbrella of these things is this list is self-sacrifice because, you want your community as a whole to be self-sacrificing, but you want each individual to be self-sacrificing. And then you as an individual have to be self-sacrificing to find this community because you have to sacrifice uh, your pride. You have to sacrifice in some in some instances your perceived identity um, and you know what makes you comfortable. Uh, so you have to self-sacrifice that and you're actually wanting the rest of the community to do that as well. So let's start with the base um, a floor and a ceiling of self-sacrifice and everything in everything I'm about to list really fits in the middle of this, I believe. Um, so really, uh, a real community, um, knows you fully, uh, and loves you fully and you know them. So that's what's really what that is called in a word is intimacy. Like, you know, the dark corners of someone else and you still love them fully with the love of God. They know the dark corners of you and there is still grace and mercy and love there. Um, they encourage you. A, a community actually encourages you and doesn't just beat you down. But even as they encourage you, they also keep you inca- accountable and they don't let you just get away with stuff. You know, they, they help you um, to recover. They ask, how are you really doing? Um, instead of just saying, hey, how's your day? Oh, it's good, cool. You know, like that's not community, right? Like community is how are you really doing? And this actually really does take a lot of self-sacrifice because one, in order to ask that question, you have to be willing to get into a deeper conversation at any moment. And to answer that question, you have to self-sacrifice some of your pride and some of your um, walls, as it were, to let people in. So that's self-sacrifice there. So that's what a community does. A community rejoices with you, weeps with you. We see that actually in scripture. Um, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I believe that's found in Romans. Um, Recovers with you, prays for you, asks you hard questions. Again, we love you, but we ask you hard questions. Um, And we set you, if you've fallen, we set you on the right path in love. Uh, Speak truth to you. That's what a community does. And ultimately, again, brings you to self-sacrifice. I mean, this is what we see Jesus do, right? Like Jesus, these are all the things that he did. And when we want to look at what a perfect community should look like, um, it should be, should is a very bold word uh, in this, should be the church. It should be the local body of Christ, the local body of believers. This is what this community should look like. If you read the scriptures, that's what a community should look like. And if you look at the way that Jesus lived and the way that he loved and the way that he called people to more, he did this very thing, ultimately self-sacrificing. I mean, that is the ultimate thing, right? So this is where I'm getting this list. This is not some kind of arbitrary, I just thought this thing up or even read it on an article. No, this is completely biblical and really uh, steeped in who Jesus is and what he did on this earth. So you spoke a little bit about the importance of being on the sending end of allowing yourself to be vulnerable and allowing someone to see the dark corners and all of that. And like the confession element of that. How would you say for someone who's on the receiving end of that, say somebody joins a a community, like a Christian community, and someone comes to them with these vulnerabilities, how should someone receive those things in such a way that it doesn't permanently turn off the person who is confessing it? Like, because that's where a lot of the damage happens, I think. It's like, yeah, 
confessing something inappropriately is bad and like it, it's awkward and it, I think there's places for it and there's places where you shouldn't be doing that. But maybe one of the most dangerous things is how you react to somebody else sharing a vulnerability with you. Um, what would you say to somebody who's in that situation on the receiving end of it? How do they handle that properly? Yeah, let me start with saying this though. Um, if you're going to open yourself up to vulnerability, which you should, it should be someone that you fully trust. This is why intimacy is so important because you have to fully trust this person before you even are able to be vulnerable, right? Like if you don't trust them, don't be vulnerable. Also, uh, side note, don't just go running around telling everybody your junk. Like you don't want to be an overshare. Please don't do that because one, it actually loses, um, it loses its uh, its gravity, its weight, essentially to have that deep connection with someone else. Um, and so, be careful with how many details you share with so many people. There should be one, maybe two people in your life that you really share everything with. And then the fringe people, they can get kind of some of the story, but they don't need all, they don't need the whole story, right? So first of all, be careful on that. Now, if you were on the receiving end of that, um, the first question is, um, the, the first question is, do I have an intimate relationship with this person? Uh, because that's gonna determine how you respond. Because if you don't have an intimate relationship with this person and they just told you all of this stuff, um, you might want to point them in the direction of a pastor or a, uh, a, a therapist, or you might want to point them in the direction of someone uh, who has the capacity and the relationship to sit with them in their stuff, essentially, right? Now, if you have a deep relationship with this person, um, or even just like it's starting to get to a deeper relationship, and this is the moment, right, that, uh, that vulnerability happens and that walls come down with this particular person, um, I think that the way that you receive them is you receive them with, first of all, no stones to throw whatsoever. Um, I went to a men's retreat uh it's man, it's been almost four years now. And, um, there was this thing that they did and I've mentioned it to a couple of our guys in, uh, in United, but they did this thing and you might think it's weird. And honestly it kind of was, but it worked. Uh, they did this thing called the mercy seat. And so, uh, what you would do and this, they did this in order to, um, develop a, a, um, develop a habit of confession. So what they would do at the beginning of everything that we did for the day, they would set up a seat in front of everyone. And if you had something to confess, you wanted to get off your chest, you sit in the seat. And the very first thing that anybody ever did after you said everything that you wanted to say, everybody in the room, now describing this, it, again, it seems really weird, but in the moment it was great. Um, everybody in the room puts up their hands and says, I've got no stones. Like, And that was such a perfect picture, really, of what Jesus did to the adulterous woman in John 8 when she was found in all of her sin, uh, probably naked before everybody, and Jesus just said, who's going to throw a stone at you? No one, no one can condemn you now. I'm not going to condemn you either. And, uh, but he followed up with, now go and sin no more. So that's what would happen is in this group, we would all say we have no stones. The leader, the pastor over the group, essentially, though, he would begin to ask questions. And he would begin to say, like, man, you know, what do you think led you to that problem? Or what do you think happened? Really, the, the mindset behind it was, okay, now go and sin no more. Like if those things led you down this path, then, um, you know, what can we do to help you to get out of that path or whatever? So let's personalize it one more, or let's personalize a little, little deeper level here. The first thing is you say, I've got no stones. I don't condemn you. I love you. I care for you. Anytime someone comes and tells me something to me like that, I'm like, Hey, I want you to know 
this might sound bad, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised because it's you. I'm just not surprised because we all have issues. And nothing is going to surprise me if you come and tell me something. Um, And so I'm not going to have any shock because I have no stones to throw. But I'm also going to, and this goes back to our community thing, I'm also going to say, how do we help you? How do we get out of this? What steps do we need to take? What kind of restoration um, do we need to take? I mean, this Bible even says, like the scriptures even say, um, you know, people are blessed when they restore a believer who has fallen, right? And we should restore him gently. I'm trying to remember where that's at. It might be in James. I know it's in one of the epistles um, that we have to restore a believer gently. Um, and that's just coming alongside somebody and saying, hey, how do we set this right? What are recovery places we can go to? Um, how can I be of help to you? I had someone come to me on Tuesday night after service and say, hey, I want to tell you this. And I said, okay, what do you need from me? What would you like from me? If you want me to hold you accountable or you want me to help you, what would you like? I'm here for you. I won't throw any stones at you. What do you need? And I think that's just a, a good thing because you don't want to sit there and give answers. Mm-hmm. right? If you give answers, you're bound to step on a landmine. You want to sit there and say, okay, what do you need from me? How can we help you? Yeah, this idea of trust is really interesting here because in the illustration you laid out about kind of holding your hands up and saying, I have no stones to throw. Now, there's a sort of a twisted analogy in the in the the culture of like setting up a community around an addiction, for instance, or around a substance. Like you go into a place like a bar and everyone's drinking the fact that everyone's drinking imports an excuse for bad behavior, essentially. So like if somebody says something stupid or acts or does something stupid, it's like we have this social, this social contract in the room of, well, we, at least we were, we were drinking. So it's it's not, it's not a huge deal. So like there's a measure of suspicion that comes in with someone who walks into a place like that and doesn't drink. And I think that the same thing, the same phenomenon happens in churches where you have, um, you know, maybe people who are sending these signals like, hey, you can trust me. Hey, I'm a fallen person. Hey, I'm, I'm just like you. Like, you know, we can have that intimacy. But then you have maybe different people who are also in the congregation who are not sending those signals. And those are the ones who sort of generate the suspicion and the lack of trust. And I think that this has to start at the pastor, the pastoral level. And so I don't know how in a, in a context where we are trying to demonstrate moral excellence or at least imitation of Christ in that context, how can we prevent people from feeling judged or feeling like there's a sense of holier than thou in particular, because how can you have accountability without any, some kind of punitive measure at some point? And as soon as you exercise the punitive measure, isn't it the case that people who are looking on are like, okay, well, I can't confess anything here because if I do, I'm going to be punished first before I'm restored and I don't want to be punished. So how do we navigate that? Yeah, well, I think it really goes into uh, what do you believe, right? Like, what are your perceived beliefs about church leadership, about people in the church? Um, I'll start with first where you said uh, there are some people within the church, global church, that really kind of lend itself to the suspicion, right? Those people are so wrong. (laughs) And they have so many problems that they probably haven't dealt with that they're super prideful, right? They're the, they're the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we see in the Bible. Oh, I'm perfect. I keep the law all the time. But they have so much crap on the inside of them that they never dealt with that um, 
they look down on everybody else because it really pride is just a form of insecurity. And so I think that first of all, they've, they've totally missed the mark. And I pray that God can reveal to them how actual terrible they are. Like, I mean, the Bible says in Romans, like we've all fallen short. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot make it happen. And if the global church would recognize that and actually truly believe that, that we're all fallen, we'd, we'd start off on a better foot, right? Okay, so now if you say, well, at least the pastors, they're somewhat vulnerable. And this really comes with, there has to be some sort of transparency from the pulpit. There has to be some sort of transparency in groups or in talking in the lobby or hanging out. Like there has to be, I mean, I share some of, I share some of my story um, when I'm on stage and I'm, I'm speaking. I don't share all the details, but I share enough of it to know, for you to know that I am not perfect and I come from a very broken life um, and my life is still broken and I need Jesus, right? So it comes with the, the public declaration of that. Now, so that sets up the scene of, okay, I can trust this person, but say you go and confess something to this person who's been vulnerable, who's been transparent with you. They love you, they care for you, but now there's this punitive measure or there's this, mm, like, what are we gonna do to, to help you on this way, right? You can look at it one of two ways. And this is why I said it's perceived belief. Uh, and this comes from a personal, I'll, I'll set it up with a personal story. So for me, I had to go through a restoration process of two years to become a pastor again, to become a credited pastor again um, when, when my life fell apart. I could look at that as, this is real stupid. How dare they? Why can't they just forgive me like Jesus forgives me? Why can't I just get back into this? This is dumb. Why would I take two years off? I don't gotta listen to these guys. I could have believed it that way, or I could believe, wow, they're not just kicking me out the door. Yeah, it's gonna take two years, but two years isn't that long in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, this is really freaking annoying, but at least in this two years, I have time to really reflect and say, do I even wanna be a pastor? Is this what God is really calling me to? I have time to grow in these next two years where I'm not, in the first year of that, I wasn't even allowed to serve in a church. like. I had actually come to Summit for a little while. I wasn't even allowed to do anything in the church for a whole year. And so I just had to come and sit. And that was good for me. Like I actually needed that. I needed to reflect. I needed time to grow. I needed time to be built back up. And I could have looked at it as a very punitive measure. And in fact, the, the system sucked and it was kind of punitive. And so I, I wanted to help reform it. But at the same time, the, the actual reasoning behind it was restoration. We want to help you. And it might feel painful, but we want to help set this back. And so it's just a healing process, right? And it's, so it's a perceived belief. If you, if you believe or if you trust someone enough to tell them everything, you also need to trust them enough that their response is the right response. That even if the response hurts, that it's the right thing to do, um, and that it will actually help you in the long run. And then you, you personally need to do the work that they've set before you or do the repentance or the restoration work that, that God has set before you or else it's on you, right? Like it, it really rests after you've told everybody or you've told someone something, if you really truly trust them enough 
then it's kind of on you to, to trust that their response is the right response. Now, that being said, if you're a leader in the church or you are someone that someone has, you are, you are somebody that someone has uh, confessed to, then you have a great responsibility, and we just talked about that, of how you respond to them. That you don't respond to them of, wow, that sucks, get out. You know, you have to respond to them the way that Jesus responded as well. Do you think that sufficiently answers that, or is there a deeper... Yeah, I mean, I think, and this might just be part of living in a fallen reality, it just seems like there's this tendency for people who are struggling with sin or have a difficulty in their life to seek out other people who are currently in the same boat so that they can affirm each other or so that they can, cause like, even if they're not affirming each other, at least they know that, okay, if I talk to this person, it's not going to come with a mandatory two years of sitting out or whatever it is like, and that might end up just being chalked up to Christian maturity of each individual and like them being responsible for their own relationship with God. And that if they choose to seek out the company that's going to affirm what they're doing, that's their choice and they have to endure the consequences, whatever those are. Um, I just wish there was a way to create a culture in which these things were effectively taken up the ladder and it doesn't even have to be within a church just anywhere like you know a, a teenager does something stupid probably they're going to talk to one of their other stupid friends rather than go to their parents about it because they don't want to deal with the judgment or the the punishment and it just is the case that they'd be better off most of the time if they went to their authority or their spiritual authority and had those conversations but there is this barrier of fear and it might even be the same barrier of fear that caused Adam and Eve to hide in the garden, you know? So that's why I'm saying maybe like, even if the interaction is between Adam and Eve and God himself, there's still the barrier of fear. Maybe it's just going to be there. Well, yeah. And that's why I say it's about perceived belief because Adam and Eve, they broke the rule and they believed that God was going to like wipe them off the earth. Probably like goodbye. Now, there was still consequences for the sin. Uh, we're living in it now, <laughs> the consequence for their sin. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, but they were hiding because they were, they were fearful of the creator. They were fearful of this person who they actually had an intimate relationship, and it's because of their perceived belief. And so that's why I really believe that it does come all the way down to that. It's like you're... you're your instance of teenager versus, you know, telling their friends versus telling their family, like, or their parents, it's a fear of punishment. It's a fear of, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to let them down. I don't want to have to deal with the consequences. But the simple fact is there's consequences to our sin. That could be great. That could be small. That could be internal. That could be external, but there's always going to be consequences to what we do. Um, and it, it is, it is the responsibility of the fallen person to be okay with those consequences. And when I say be okay with, I mean, simply say, I've got to accept this. I've got to work through it. Like I, I have to work through these things. I can't just continue the same cycle. That's why I brought up last night or Tuesday night, the paradox of addiction, that the paradox of addiction is that it is entirely not your fault that you're addicted um, in the sense that, you're addicted because something probably happened to you. You were pressured into it. You started something and 
you didn't recognize how long that would, how far that would take you down the path. Um, you know, a lot of pornography addictions start this way. Like you're, you're introduced to it unbeknownst to you. Oh crap. Now I'm introduced to this thing or something pops up and you don't know, um, that you're also dealing with some issues in your life that, that, uh, are causing a disconnection. And now, okay, this has shown up. This makes me feel good. You don't realize the depth of it. Um, so it's, it's not your fault most of the time. But it's also, if you stay addicted, entirely your fault. And that's the paradox. It is entirely not your fault, but it's also entirely your fault. If you are not willing to take on the consequences to confess, to do the work, to to mend uh, broken relationships, to mend broken things inside of you. Um, when I was in my restoration process and going through therapy, it was never about why did you do this? It was about what's broken in you. Where are the Where are the holes that are in your life that is happening? What happened to you when you were younger that maybe caused this path for you, this trajectory? And so, but my therapist, you know, she would never be like, I'm not gonna let you off the hook. Like, yeah, it's still, you still did these things. Um, and so you have to live with the consequences, but also know for your sake, you know, uh, for your, for your mental sake that these things were kind of brought on for you in a sense, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's really not about, okay, how do we train this person to become better at resisting this thing? It's more like, okay, for some reason or some set of reasons, you have fertile ground in your life, which lends itself to the manifestation of this thing. And so what we need to do is we need to figure out what's causing that fertile ground and make it less fertile so that the path of least resistance is not descent back into addiction. Exactly. A hundred percent. Like, I mean, we all have our vices, right? And like your vice is not going to be the same as mine most of the time. You know, I, I was exposed to pornography at a very, very, very young age, but I didn't actually get addicted to pornography. It was something else. Like it was, it was sexual addiction in a different way. Um, you know, I got drunk all the time in college, but I never really became an alcoholic. It was just something to do. Um, and I still, to this day, am not like, oh, I cannot wait for, you know, like, I just don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Um, and, uh, you know, never did drugs or whatever, never was really brought to that, never wanted to try that. But I have been addicted to other things because my life um, has, like you said, it's, it's fertile ground for specific things. Um, and I think that we we have to have a little bit more grace in that, you know, as we respond to people. Um, but also we have to take on that responsibility of, yeah, I did this. I still have to take on these consequences. I still have to take responsibility in this area. Um, and if we could come to that mindset, I think we'd all be, (laughs) we all be better off because a lot of times people, the way that we treat addicts, the way that we treat, let's just say downfalls, right? Is don't do that again. I would like to say that it is impossible for you to have enough power to resist for the rest of your life. Say you're you're free, right? Say you've got you go to AA or whatever and you get your coin. You don't get your coin and keep your coin just cuz you're so your willpower is so freaking strong cuz willpower runs out at some point. You get that because you build up other relationships. You get that because and you keep going going because you're doing the work that um, allows you to not move towards that direction again. Uh, and really the Bible talks about it. It's about renewing your mind, literally changing the neural pathways in your mind. It's not about, I'm going to resist really hard. It's that there's a hole and now it's filled with this instead of this addiction. And that is really the key to addiction recovery. 
and really, honestly, to defeat temptation in general, right? Like that is the way to do it. It's about building a proper connection with your life and the people in your life. So I have a note from Tuesday night's message and we can finish on this. This is, uh, this is interesting, so I wanna unpack it. The reason addiction is so strong and is so hard to overcome is because it gives you a false sense of power and control when you feel powerless. And the reason this is interesting to me is because often, so it, I, I don't, maybe you have to help walk me through this because it seems to be in the throes of addiction, the person is powerless over their addiction much of the time or else they at least appear to be powerless. So where is this illusion of power coming in when it comes to an addiction? Is it, is it the feeling of surrender to the substance maybe yeah, like wh- where is it wh- where are they feeling the illusion of power i think the illusion of power comes from the power to numb something or the power to uh the power to take care of yourself essentially like if you're feeling this pull towards addiction or you're feeling this pull towards your device or whatever and this is why i say it's such a false sense is because you have this sense that well like i can just shut it down now because i can just take and so Again, even in that in of itself is a paradox because yes, you you are probably powerless to your device, but you have this false sense of power that man, if I just if I just do this one more time, I'll be good. If I just do this one more time, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll do it this one time and then I'll be done for the rest of my life. And that's that false sense of power, but that's what keeps that's what keeps you hooked. Yeah. So okay, I get it now. So it's like same kind of thing with idolatry. Um, if I have an idol. One of the things that makes that idol different from God himself is that with the idol, it doesn't move or do anything until I tell it to or until I want it to. It's only there when I want it to be. And so the same thing happens with like an addiction or a drug. It's like, okay, I actually don't need real connection with other people. I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to to sacrifice for relationships because I have this thing. And this thing is here when when I need it, when I want it, it takes care of me when I tell it to. So like there's where all the power comes in because it it gives you the sense of autonomy such that you don't need to pour into any other relationships because as long as you have the drug, you're good. Yeah, and I think honestly where we see this most is pornography addiction and sex addiction. Like yes, it shows itself in in alcoholism or in uh, in drugs or even in workaholics. Like uh, you know, um really honestly in, in in sex addiction and in I would even say social media addiction, right? Is like you get to choose your interaction essentially. Mm-hmm. You get to control the interaction that you have with outside world, with the outside world. You get to control your interaction that you have sexually with somebody um, or how they make you feel, quote unquote. Um, you get to choose that. And so really, this comes with more relational addictions um, uh, or social media addictions or digital addictions, if you will. I think this shows itself more in that aspect, but it still is prevalent um, within any other addiction is that, like you said, I get to control for the most part when I feel good or when I get to have this fix or how I'm going to relate to this person or relate to this thing or whatever. And so really that's the danger in it because you think you have power, but really the addiction has all the power. And where this came from was the scripture in uh, Romans 7 that says, Romans 7, 18 through 25 that says, there is another power within me. And Paul says, so when I do bad, It's not even me that's doing the bad thing. It's the sin that lives in me. And so he's even confessing like, you know, I want to do right, but there is a power within me that's greater than my willpower 
But there's also, and he resolves with this, and this is where um, I resolved as well, is there's a power that's greater than that power, even if you believe in Jesus. Um, And he has set you free from the ultimate consequence of sin, and that's death. That doesn't mean you won't have to experience consequences here on earth for sin, but you will not have to experience them eternally. And that is what the power of the Holy Spirit is able to do. And so I, I, I ended that statement that you said you're powerless, or that, that you said the reason why addiction is so strong um, is because it gives you a false sense of power and control when you feel powerless. The key to addiction recovery here is to believe and to understand that you actually are powerless but that God is not powerless, that, that God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. And um, I finished off the, the evening with this saying, if we would stop trying to use our own power to deal with life, with our cage, and, connect, and we would actually connect to God, to the Holy Spirit, we might actually be able to be made well. Mm-hmm. We might actually be able to start walking in that freedom if we stopped trying to take our own power because we don't really have it, the false sense, and leaned into the power of the Holy Spirit to help us connect with our world around us, to help renew our mind. In fact, that's how you renew your mind, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12 talks about that. So, that's yeah, the way. That really is probably the most, maybe the most dangerous thing about addictions in general is that, and this calls back to the beginning of the message, in that these things really are coping mechanisms. And what they do is they give you the illusion that you don't need to lean into the Holy Spirit. And you don't need to lean into Jesus because you can lean into this addiction. You, if you have on a hard day, well, I'll just look forward to the drink that's waiting for me at the end of it. It's yeah. not how can I lean in on Christ and how can he get me through this. It's how is my drink at the end of the day going to make me feel better? Like, how, you know, so you, it, it really... Like, like we talked about earlier, you, you have these stressors or these holes or these issues in your life and you get to decide what you fill it with. And if you fill it with the addictive substance at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of just like idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. I'll leave you with this. It's crazy. Cause you just made me, it reminded me. Um, so you said like, it's a kind of a replacement for the Holy spirit. Um, in Ephesians, uh, Paul is telling the, the Ephesian church, Hey, don't get drunk on wine. Um, instead, be drunk with the Spirit. Be drunk with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I've said many times, uh, oddly enough, too, by the way, uh, alcohol, uh, you know, is liquor is called spirits. Um, but uh, I've said many times when I've talked about this is like that uh, that alcohol is actually a replacement for the Holy Spirit because it it um, it in some cases makes you quote unquote more of who you really are on the inside, or it makes you have to connect with something you actually didn't really want to connect with. And it makes you sad. Like it can, it can bring you down. Um, but it, it's a, it's a 100%. It is a, uh, false. Um, it is a false Holy spirit. Essentially. Uh, it, it leads you down that path that it, you, you don't have control when you drink too much, right? Well, when you are drunk in the spirit, essentially, when you're so connected with the Holy spirit, again, your flesh doesn't have control. Like the spirit has control over you and you don't need to worry about, well, what if I do? And what if I don't know, man, the Holy spirit has me, he has control of me and everything that I do. And so, uh, yeah, it just reminded me of that. Like alcohol literally is a replacement for what the Holy spirit Spirit is supposed to be doing in your life. And that is why it is so important for us to keep our connection with the Holy Spirit by reading the Word of God, by praying, by worshiping, by getting into a community that actually, uh, you know, does the things that we said earlier, um, that self-sacrifices and that, that, that 
makes you be uh, someone who self-sacrifices as well. So all these things, this is not an end-all be-all, but this is really where it starts. And if you are bound, if you are stuck in an addiction, this right here is where it actually starts to move forward and to, to get out. I had to have it in my own life. I wore a mask for a really long time, for 30 years pretty much, wore a mask and tried to do it all on my own and tried to hide things and tried to only let the people that would affirm me know um, what I was dealing with. But it wasn't until I actually connected with my real life and with what God really thought about me, which was that he loved me, but he had more for me. It wasn't until then until I started the recovery. So that's a great place to land the plane. Hey, uh, guys, if you haven't been out to United, it's Tuesday evening, 7.27 p.m. We are currently having it at 2707 West Pike Road, Indiana, Pennsylvania. That's at Summit Church. We hope to see you all there. It's a great time. Hey, thank you for listening to the Uloft podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Uloft podcast. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. Also, come out and join us for a Unite every Tuesday at 7.27 p.m. This is a time of music, friends, and important teaching. You don't want to miss it. You can learn more about Unites, as well as everything else we do, by visiting unitediup.com. Thank you all for hanging out with us, and we will see you in the next episode.